You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Have you ever had a time in your life that you would call a crisis? In, in a room of this size, there, may, there are few, if not many, who would be in such a time right now. And I suspect that most of us, if we've lived long enough, we can look back at some moment in our life, some time, some season, if not many seasons, that we would call a crisis moment. We might say that it felt like the earth beneath our feet was shaking. Or we may say that our world was being turned upside down. We reach for catastrophic language in crisis moments, like Psalm 46 does in verses two and three. To put into words, put into concrete images, the kind of tumult that we're feeling within our own souls in those moments with the earth shaking, with our world turned upside down. It could be a national crisis. Maybe you've felt the tremors of those. It could be an international crisis. Those can indeed whip up our anxieties. And it might have been a kind of national crisis or at least a civic crisis that is behind Psalm 46. We'll look at that. But a national crisis in our modern world playing out far away in the news, on our screens is a far cry from the way that a personal crisis rocks our own soul. Psalm 46 was composed in a time of crisis. And it is preserved for us today by the hand of God for our crises. The particular crisis that gave rise to these verses is left unidentified. So that may not satisfy our curiosities, but it does show us the timelessness of our God. This was not just written for one particular singular crisis. This was written for crises, countless crises, many crises in our own life. And they're ready-made. The psalm is ready-made for our crisis today. So what was this original crisis? We don't know much about it, but there's two aspects to it. There is a raging nations part and there's a raging nature part. There are two threats talked about, however literally or figuratively in Psalm 46. The first about nations is a threat, we would think, to Jerusalem, the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. There's some threat on Jerusalem from a foreign army. Verse six, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. Verse nine, we hear of war, bows, spear, War chariots. Perhaps these are the carts that are used for making siege works against the city. And then there's the imagery from nature. The earth and mountains, which are typically images of stability. They're shifting. They're moving, tottering. The earth is moving. The earth gives way, verse 2. The mountains are moved into the heart of the sea. Its waters roar and foam. The mountains tremble at the swelling of the sea. So the stable, secure earth 
and mountains are being overtaken by the restless, raging, unstable, dangerous sea. It's a picture of natural cataclysm, perhaps even end times catastrophe. And into this particular chaos, this crisis, this life and death threat to the city of Jerusalem, verse two says, amazingly, as Mike just prayed, we will not fear. That's how God means to help us with this psalm this morning and in our own crises, to displace our fear with confidence in him to give us stable ground under our feet, even when we're in our crisis moment. If God's people can be without panic when the ground is shifting and the seas are raging and the nations are raging, then we can face any crisis in our lives with confidence in him. Whatever trouble comes, Psalm 46, with its very first word, tells us where it would have us to turn. Not a change in our circumstances. Not to our best efforts to fix the problem. Not to our anxious strategies to avoid pain and difficulty. But rather, God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. This psalm rings with the name of God again and again. Verse four mentions the city of God. Verse five, God is in her midst. Verse five, verse five again, God will help. Verses seven and 11 refers to the God of Jacob and his covenant name, the Lord, Yahweh. In verses seven and eight and 11 and verse 10, be still and know that I am God. That's where we're headed. Stop raging and scurrying and plotting and scrolling. Cease your frantic efforts. Be still and bow to the living God. But don't just bow. Know him. Be still and know. Know for the first time. Or know again, learn afresh that he is God. And just as Jacob had him as his covenant God to protect him, so we have him all the more in Jesus Christ. If God can handle, this is the message of Psalm 46. If God can handle the world's ultimate undoing, the nation's raging against his own chosen people, he can handle your crisis. He can help in your trouble, however catastrophic it seems in the crisis moment. So this psalm, I hope you take this away this morning. This psalm, Psalm 46, will always be ready because the God to whom it points is always ready for those who are in Christ Jesus. Which leads to specifically what does this psalm say? How does this psalm help us? What's the details? What's the specific help we get in Psalm 46? How is it ready-made for our crises? The power of this psalm is in its vision of God, which is often the most important thing we need in our crises. 
It gives us God so that we may not fear and have real peace of soul that comes from knowing him. So three pillars then in Psalm 46 that upholds its vision of God. Number one, he is infinitely strong. One of the overwhelming effects of Psalm 46, and perhaps the chief effect of the Psalm, it rings out in the first verse, is that it communicates to our souls, your God is strong. He is infinitely strong. He's so strong you can't even imagine how strong he is. Some call this psalm, with with a few others, a psalm of confidence. It builds confidence in our God. It starts with his strength. By rehearsing God's strength, God's people's fears are displaced. And those fears are based on lies. And the fears are displaced by confidence in him that is based on remembering who he is, knowing who he is for real, in truth. And this is why Martin Luther loved Psalm 46 and why Psalm 46 was the inspiration for his battle hymn of the Reformation called A Mighty Fortress, which we opened with this morning. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark, never failing. In the face of proverbial raging seas in our lives, and literal raging enemies that may be right outside the gates. God's people have strength himself on their side. However quick we are to forget about that. We forget so quick. We need Psalm 46 over and over. Now, if you were to try to depict God's strength, you wanna talk to somebody about God's strength. You wanna convince them that God is strong. A child, maybe, or a friend. How do you go about depicting God's strength? It's one thing to just say, God is strong. It's another to show it and to make it concrete and make it tangible in our souls and in the ears of those who would hear our words. How do you quantify divine strength? How do you provide glimpses into the infinite power of our God? There's at least four here in Psalm 46, four glimpses of his strength. The first two are where it opens in verse one. God is our refuge and strength. That is, he protects and he empowers on the outside, on the inside. Refuge, as you may know, is a defensive image. It's a place of protection or safety. If we have any Lord of the Rings people here, you're welcome to be here. I love you. I'm one of you. I don't know about Fast and Furious, but I know Lord of the Rings. In the two towers, there is Helm's Deep. Helm's Deep is a refuge. It's a place you go for safety. When they hear that the armies of Mordor are coming onto the land of Rohan, they go into Helm's Deep, to the refuge, to be safe. It's a place of protection, of safety. Strength, then, is God's providing his people with inner power to keep going. So he provides refuge on the outside, and not only that, anybody can provide refuge on the outside. 
He provides strength on the inside, energy and hope to keep going, keep breathing, keep walking in the midst of your crisis. So refuge and strength are a pair that speak to his outer power as well as his inner power in our own soul. It's defensive and in a sense, offensive. So there's the first two glimpses of God's strength. Third glimpse, verse six, the last part of verse six. He utters his voice, the earth melts. Such a picture of God's power and strength. Nobody else does this. He doesn't need fire to melt the earth. He doesn't need arms and hands to melt the earth. He doesn't need a tool or a laser to melt the earth. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The power of God is seen in the power of his word. How's that for a glimpse of strength? All he has to do is say it and it happens. Just as he spoke the world into being and spoke the world into order, so he speaks and can dissolve the world into chaos and right out of existence with his very word. And with his voice, with his word, he can dispel fear from our hearts. He can help his people have confidence even when their world is shaking by the power of his voice, his word. Fourth then, verse nine. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. In other words, God defeats his enemies for his people. Very practically, he defeats them. No matter how fierce, no matter how strong, how weaponized they are, how terrible they are. When he's ready, God says, enough. He doesn't run out on the battlefield and say, enough, enough. He just says, enough. That's it. You can cease. You can be done. And even then, even as he now endures war, as we look to the end, and God endures war, tumult, chaos, raging nations in our day. He does so with patience. War will cease. It will. There will be a full and enduring final peace. God will see to it with his very divine strength. And he can do it with a word. As Martin Luther said, one little word shall fail the devil. So the first pillar that upholds the crisis-ready vision of our God in Psalm 46 is his infinite strength. Second then, his attentive presence. He is attentively present, which is amazing given his strength. That is, it's amazing if you're on his side and it's horrifying if you're against him, right? This is the second part of verse one. The psalm opens with exactly where it's going. Verses, there's a sense in which verses two to 11 fill out what is declared in verse one. So verse one, 
God is a refuge and strength. And then second part, a very present help in trouble. Here's his attentive presence. He is not only strong with infinite strength, but he is present to help his people in trouble. And he's not just present. He is very present, meaning attentively present, meaning he is ready and eager to help. It's not like he's able to help with infinite strength if you could just get his attention. He's infinitely strong and he's there and he's attentive and he's ready and he's eager to help. Verses four and five expand on this nearness, this presence, this withness of God in our crisis. Look at verses four and five. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Now there's, there's several obscure pieces here in verses four and five. So let's, let's take this apart, put it back together. First is this river in verse four. And this is not the first mention of water in Psalm 46. And what's the other mention of water so far? Look at Parnell kids here to answer this. Sea, right? <laughs> the other mention of water so far is the sea. The restless, raging, unstable, dangerous sea. But now we have a different kind of water in verse four. Now we have a river. And a river is predictable. A river is life-giving. Water that's a river in a city keeps the city alive when it is cut off from the outside by the siege of a foreign hostile army. And this river in Jerusalem, in the city of God, while it's in, while it's in crisis, is so precious that it doesn't just keep the city alive, but verse four says, it makes the city glad. Joy, gladness in crisis, with a foreign army surrounding the city. Even in the midst of such a crisis, there is gladness. There is joy even in pain and such threat because the life-giving river, who is God himself, is present with his people to sustain them in the crisis. Our God, as our refuge and our strength, doesn't only get us through the crisis, but gives us joy in the crisis. But this river and this city of God raises a question for us. Where? There's a particular spot, a particular location in Psalm 46 where God is and where the help is, where the safety is, particular spot. It's a particular city that God makes glad with the water of his life and the river of his presence. And it's not any city. It's not Babylon. And it's not the wilderness. He doesn't say, go wander in the wilderness and meet God and he'll protect you out there in the wilderness. There's a particular spot where God has promised his presence. And in Psalm 46, it's Zion or city of Jerusalem. It's the place that God chose to be in the midst of her. 
so that she will not be moved. Which is very significant for us reading Psalm 46 today as Christians. Because a lot's happened in the last 2,500, 3,000 years. No longer is there a particular physical place where God pledges his special presence and favor. Now there is a particular person, God's own son, where he promises his favor and his presence. So as Christians, we do not rally to a particular physical city. We rally to a particular person. We rally to him for refuge, for strength, for present help in trouble. And as we rally to him together, there is a location, there's a people, there's a collective, there's a church where we rally in our crisis. And this place where God chooses to be present in all his strength, once it was Jerusalem, now it is in Jesus and in his body. Verse five says, this place shall not be moved. Verse two spoke of mountains being moved. And verse six speaks of kingdoms tottering. That's the same word. Kingdoms being moved, shifted, tottering. And now verse five said God's people, the mountains are being moved, the nations are being moved, and God's people are not moved because they have granite on which to put their feet. Nature's moved, nations moved, the people are not moved. Then in Jerusalem and now in the beloved son. Which, get this, get this straight. This doesn't mean that God's people never go through crisis. This Psalm with all its confidence and its strength and its nearness to God and its eagerness of God to help never promises that we will be spared crisis. In fact, it assumes it. We have this Psalm for crisis. The assumption is you will have crisis, many crises. And it readies us for crisis with its vision of God. And in the crisis, it promises God's help. But it doesn't promise God's help on our timetable. Verse five says, God will help when the morning dawns. Which is such a curious phrase. When the morning dawns. There is so much here, biblically, about the imagery of the dawning of the morning and of the new day. And perhaps it gets its very beginning in the Exodus. Maybe you remember from Exodus 14, as we were there as a church not long ago, or you know the story, Exodus 14, God's people seeking to escape slavery from Egypt. Their backs are up against the Red Sea with its chaos, its unpredictability, its instability, its undrinkable salt water. Back up against the sea, and the Egyptians are bearing down on them with 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt besides. And the people panic. God's people panic in that situation. It's not a surprise. This is a crisis indeed. And they have no walled city to run to. There's no Helm's Deep 
to take cover in. There's no river among them for fresh water to preserve them while they hold out with the foreign army outside. And into this crisis, Moses is prompted by God to speak these words to the people. This is Exodus 14, verse 13. This is a be still and know moment. He says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. And perhaps you know how it goes. He lifts his staff, the sea, in all its chaos, all its instability, parts. And God's people walk through on dry land. And the Egyptians follow. And so at God's command, here's verse 27. This is the morning dawn's part, verse 27. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. Exodus 14, 27. Hear this this morning. For every crisis that we face in Christ, in all its darkness, God has a dawn designed. Are you in crisis right now? There's a dawn designed by the hand of God for you that is coming. He will help, verse five says, when morning dawns. We don't bring that dawn, he brings the dawn. The dawn will come. God's help does not mean that his people are kept from crisis. God's help means that his people are kept through their crisis. In his perfect timing, when he has appointed the dawning of the next day, he rescues his people from their trouble, having preserved them through the darkness of the night. That leads to a third and final pillar in the passage. Number three, he will be exalted. He will be exalted. He is infinitely strong. He is attentively present. He will be exalted, which might be surprising. If God's infinitely strong, if he's attentively present, he's eager to help, isn't that enough? Can we just end at verse seven? What's this last section? What more is there to say? Why at the very height of Psalm 46, this is verse 10, it's the famous verse, right? Be still and know. Here's the famous verse 10. This is the height of Psalm 46. Why does he say there, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted among the earth. How does God's own declaration that he himself will be exalted feed our confidence? We need this, in our crisis, we need this. To answer that, let's get verse 10, pick up verse 10 in the context. So verse eight, the language changes with verse eight. Verse eight issues an invitation to the raging nations that are setting themselves up as enemies of the living God and of his people. And verse eight is almost a taunt. It would probably be fair to call verse eight a taunt. But it's also secondarily an invitation to his people who might be fearful. Remember this, people. Verse eight, come, 
Behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. Remember, all God has to do is say the word. As we saw in verse nine, when he chooses, in his perfect timing, he makes war cease. He breaks bows, he shattered shields, he burns chariots and siege works with fire. In other words, it is a lost cause to set yourself up against this God. However long you may be deluded by his patience. And then verse 10 issues another word of invitation. And it's first an invitation to the raging nations, but also to God's fearful people. And this is the climactic statement of the psalm. He says, raging nations, fearful people. Remember, he doesn't have to run out in the battlefield and shout. He just says, be still and know that I'm God. Did you hear the change of voice there from verse eight and the invitation, come behold the works of the Lord? And now verse 10, be still and know that I am God. Now in verse 10, God himself is speaking. He is issuing the invitation. He utters his voice. Will we melt? To the raging nations, to the, to to the tottering kingdoms, And oh, we know tottering kingdoms. We know raging nations. And he speaks into this chaos, into the raging, into the tottering. He says, be still. Cease your warring and your deconstruction. Cease your rage and disorder. Be still which is first a rebuke to the nations, to the raging nations, to the turbulent world that set itself up against God. However, it is also a word to God's people. We hear him say it to our foes and we read it in our Bibles. (laughs) Be still, church. You need not be anxious. You need not be fearful. You need not go into a frenzy to save yourself and save your family and bring your country back to the 1950s. Be still and look to me, he says. Rest from all your horizontal diversions and divisions and discouragements and look up for more than just 10 seconds or more than just a quick 10 minutes a day. Look up, be still. And in that stillness, own you are not God. And you can be happy about that. You are not infinitely strong. You are not attentively present. And you dare not be self-exalting, but know that he is God. And how do we know him in his godness? 
the next two declarations in verse 10. From the mouth of God himself about his own certain exaltation. As surely as he is God, I will be exalted among the nations, he says. I will be exalted in the earth. For God's covenant people Israel back then, and for his covenant people today in Christ, God's exaltation is our salvation. God's exaltation is our refuge, is our strength, is our very present help in crisis. This is precious. Where do you turn in your crisis? Turn to the most certain reality in the universe, which is God will be exalted. He will exalt himself among the nations and among all the earth. We need that stability, need that steel in our spine in crisis, the very godness of God to exalt himself, which is horrifying to his enemies and loving to his people. The word fortress in verse seven, and then in the refrain in verse 11, is the final word on which the psalm ends. And this is important. Fortress is an even stronger image than refuge in verse one. Fortress here is a picture of inaccessible height. Helm's Deep is a refuge. Heaven is a fortress. It cannot be assailed. It is not just a bulwark. It is a bulwark never failing. The refrain is beautiful in verse seven. You know, you got verses one to six, you got the refrain in verse seven. It's beautiful there. And it comes with an added force now in verse 11. After verses eight, nine, and especially 10, God's exaltation. Verse 11, added force on the heels of God's promise to be exalted. Not only is he strong, not only is he attentively present, he will be exalted as sure as anything in the universe. As surely as he is God, he will be exalted. And for his people, we have in this God and in his certain exaltation an impenetrable fortress, come what may. And so we come to the table. And here we remember that Psalm 46 is not the last time that the divine voice uttered the words, be still, is it? God himself in human flesh slept in the storm. You want a picture of confidence, picture of trust in God? He slept in the storm, the raging seas, the tottering of the boat. He's sleeping in faith. But his disciples don't sleep, they panic, right? And this seemed to be a life or death, death crisis for them. And when they woke him, Jesus was not frantic, but he spoke stillness into the storm. Peace, be still. I don't think he had to yell it at the top of his lungs. He probably just said it loud enough that the disciples could hear it. Peace, be still. And so the calm of his own soul settled 
over the raging seas. The wind ceased, says Mark 4.39, and there was a great calm. And so perhaps God would be pleased to do that for us this morning as we come to the end of Psalm 46 and as we gather as a people here at this table. In Jesus Christ, we know the God of Psalm 46. And in him come together saving strength and presence and exaltation of the one to whom we turn in crisis, who speaks peace be still into the raging storms of our soul. This is a meal for the members of City's Church, but if you're here with us this morning and you would claim this Jesus as the one who would give peace to your soul in the raging storms of life, we would invite you to eat with us. The pastors will come, we'll distribute the bread first, retain, meet together, then bring the cup. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.